Thanks for pressing play. It's easy to make a case that we are living at the most comfortable time in human history. Almost everything comes to us from Google results, delivering all the knowledge in the world, to streaming video, to home delivery of everything, to just-in-time podcasts whenever you want them. And our guest today, Michael Easter, says that we are having a comfort crisis. And that's the name of his new book, which is quite extraordinary. According to the U.S. CDC, 73.6% of Americans are either overweight or obese. The World Health Organization says obesity has reached epic proportions globally with at least 2.8 million people dying each year. Making the picture even less rosy, um, our mental health is not exactly doing great. Nearly 8 in 10 adults, or 78%, say that the coronavirus pandemic is a significant source of stress in their lives. And 3 out of 5 Americans, or about 60%, say the number of issues America faces is overwhelming to them. That's according to the American Psychological Association. Michael underscores that people are 14 times less active today than they have been historically. And he notes that most of us are inside 95 plus percent. In his new book, The Comfort Crisis, he makes the case for how much we need to be active and outside to have a legendary life and how we need to embrace discomfort to reclaim ourselves. Pay close attention to the concept that he talks about called the nature pyramid and why being hungry is legendary. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are an award-winning real dialogue podcast. And if you value authentic dialogue over asinine sound bites, you're in the right place. We're sponsored by my friends at Oracle NetSuite. They are the platform for your business. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And don't forget to go to lockhead.com and subscribe to our newsletter, Category Pirates. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Michael, I got to tell you right off the top, thanks for writing this book. You're welcome. Sounds like you uh, might have enjoyed it then. Not only did I enjoy it, I, I've been waiting for you to write this for about 20 years, so I'm glad you finally got around to it. Yeah, I've, I've been busy the past couple of decades, but I did. I did it, and I did it just for you. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it resonated. Well, and it's funny, you know, isn't it true that way with books that really work for you? It, it feels like the author wrote them for you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm glad it. I'm. It's it's interesting. I've had conversations about the book with different people who've read it, and it's interesting to me what resonates with people. So part of the book is it's looking at in all these different forms of discomfort through viewed through a variety of lenses, and I can never anticipate like what specific section or chapter is going to be the one that really grabs people. And so hearing that is interesting, which now I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, what did resonate with you most? Well, first I got to tell you, like a lot of great books, the title. So when your PR firm 
reached out and I saw this in my inbox. The title grabbed me immediately. And then I, I do what I always do with a new book, look at the subtitle. And then, of course, I look at who's the author, right? Because it's one thing when some guy who lives in his parents' basement publishes a, a book on leadership. It's a whole other thing when General McChrystal does it, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, the writer matters a lot. And I looked at your background in the context of the title, and I basically skimmed the rest of the PR pitch and went, absolutely, I'm dying to talk to this guy already. <laughs> So nice. what got me was the title, the subtitle. And then I looked at your background and thought, this is a great guy to be writing about something I care deeply about. And I, I you, you had me, the needle was in the vein. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I got to give uh, credit to the title goes to my editor. We went back and forth on different things to call it. And uh, he landed on that and it was like, yeah, I think that's it, you know? So... And so maybe start there. I mean, it, it, that's what resonated with me the most. And of course, the book pays the whole thing off, which I want to get into with you. But why did you decide with, uh, to go with her or his advice on the title? So it's called The Comfort Crisis. And I think um, if you look at how humans lived for 2.5 million years through all of time, it is vastly, vastly different than the way we live now. And what's really changed is that we are much more comfortable now. So in our past environments, everything took effort. We were, you know, we faced cold, we faced weather. Um, there was rarely enough food. So we were hungry all the time, just these trying environments. And it was, it was that way really to varying degrees up until about a hundred years ago. Now, when we're talking about over 2.5 million years of time, that is a fraction of time that our world started to really start to get comfortable. So now you think of how we live. It's like we wake up in a soft bed. We live in air conditioning 24 hours of the day or heating. Uh, we don't have to really put in any physical effort into our days to live. I mean, you can literally, you know, walk a thousand steps a day and live every single day, you know, um, food is completely effortless. We don't have to put in effort to get food. The food that we do have is really hyper palatable and very different compared to the food we had in the past and all these things sort of combined and they are at the root cause of a lot of the problems we now face. So things like chronic disease have never been higher, uh, in any species ever. Uh, we are moving about 14 times less than our ancestors. We spend 95% of our time indoors. Uh, we spend 11 hours and six minutes a day uh, engaging with digital media. Now, this is a thing that was invented about 100 years ago. So we went from never having these you know, digital media in our lives to now it's essentially become our lives. And that's had consequences for our attention, um, our awareness, how we spend our time, and also our interactions with others. And it's led to some mental health problems. And I mean, there's just so many things. I mean, I could keep going forever, but, uh, things have really changed and we're too comfortable now is the short answer. So. Well, and what struck me as I was going through your book and thinking about this a lot, um, is it feels like to me, we have confused comfort for happiness. And I think when we take a step back and I was certainly reflecting on this with your book, um, is when we are most happy, it's not always connected to being comfortable. Sometimes it is. Look, I love being comfortable. I love having a nap in the afternoon. I love kicking my feet up with one of my favorite beers. I mean, we all love 
being comfortable cuddling with your your the person you like to cuddle with in front of Netflix flicks during a pandemic can be very comforting and human beings need that and that's that's great but it seems like we've over indexed on it and we've we've gotten comfort and happiness confused yes i agree and i think part of it too is that we don't have a perspective of just how great we have it now because we're constantly surrounded in convenience and comfort like you said it's you know netflix and sitting on the couch and ordering a domino's pizza is awesome it is awesome love it i do it every now and then hey let's order pizza right now we'd have pizza and beers right now you're making me hungry (laughs) (laughs) i like it but you can't really appreciate those things as much Unless you've had periods of time where you've had, you know, struggle and been hungry and put yourselves in position of of challenge. So a good example uh, from the book is that so I spent 33 days in the Arctic reporting this book. This is one of the the things I did. And um, everything up there was was uncomfortable. And I mean, we're constantly freezing cold, um, super hungry. Like I remember one night we had. uh gotten pretty far away from camp about 10 miles. And so we had to hike 10 miles back to camp across the tundra. And it is, I mean, it's below zero out. And it was also one of those things where I didn't want to keep going, but I didn't have a choice because if we would have stopped, I mean, it would have been very dangerous. So you have to just keep on going. We get back to camp, uh, in this teepee we stayed in and, um, we didn't have that much food. And it's like, oh my God, we just worked our butts off. And now I'm coming back to like a freaking protein bar. You know, I'm just starving. And after a couple of days, those those protein bars and cliff bars and stuff, they they it's, they start t- tasting like shit, don't they? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, they start tasting like shit usually just immediately, but they taste even more like shit after <laughs> a week or so. But I told you that to tell you this. Before... I went up to the Arctic. My wife and I go to this restaurant and um, the food is amazing. Now the service, I mean, it is run like just so terribly, right? And so every time we would go to this place, we'd have to sit and wait a ta- wait for a table. And I'd stand there and I would just be like annoyed, you know, be like, oh my God, I wish these people could just get it together and look at all these inefficiencies in the system. And can you believe that they are wasting my time, you know? <laughs> and... Um, now, when we go to that restaurant after after having put myself through this, you know, thirty three days in the Arctic and having these situations, I stand there and I can think back to that moment in that teepee where I'm freezing cold and I'm eating this Cliff Bar and I just think, man, this is awesome. I would take standing in this warm restaurant that is inefficient where I'm about to eat an amazing meal over that any any time of day, right? 10 times out of 10. And so we don't have these moments that push back at our essential, essentially what are first world problems anymore. And so I think getting yourself out of your comfort zone in a variety of ways can do that and give you a little more perspective on your life. And I know for me, it's made me slightly less of an asshole, right? (laughs) So imagine, you know, if we could put this idea at scale and have people realize that a lot of what we complain about today is just like, we have it so good. And yet here we are like miserable because I had to wait 10 extra minutes at a restaurant, you know? <laughs> yes. And so we've sort of gotten our heads uh, screwed on wrong. And one of the things that struck me with your book is I think about in the context of raising children mm. and wanting to have uh, young people be confident. 
And it seems like some of us have gotten confused that the way you raise confident children is to cheer them on and tell them good things about what they're doing, as opposed to put them in challenging situations where they have to decide, are they going to rise up to the challenge or are they going to crater? And there's no amount of telling a kid, oh, you're good, awesome, good, try all that that's going to give them confidence. Confidence comes from doing something that is challenging for you, that you figure out how to deal with, you deal with it, and now you become confident at it because you learned something, you overcame something. And so confidence doesn't come from encouragement. It comes from doing. And and to me, a big premise in your book, Michael, is it comes from doing shit that makes us uncomfortable and in many cases scares the shit out of us. Yes, exactly. And to your point about raising children, uh, overlaying this idea on it, it's when you look at the past, how kids were raised, a lot of times uh, we would go through these rites of passage and they were oftentimes uh, nature-based and there was often an element of danger. So it's, you know, the young person, whether that person was 15 or 20 or whatever age um, the culture had decided would often go out into nature, leave, you know, leave the comfort of their tribe go out alone into nature and they'd have to do this really epic, difficult physical task that had an, ele- that had an element of danger. So for example, uh, the Maasai tribe in uh, Tanzania, they would actually hunt lions. Young warriors would be sent out to hunt lions with a spear. And if you killed the lion, you would come back as a warrior for the tribe and you'd be ready to sort of move on in this next stage of your life. And these are, I mean, these stories and uh, practices are, you know, throughout time and space. It's like the work of Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, you know, hero leaves comfort of home, goes into trying middle ground along the way, has all these battles. But then once you complete that, you come back and you've learned something about yourself and you've really transformed as a person. So Campbell has this line that says, when we slay the dragon, we're actually slaying ourselves. We're moving into this like new phase of uh, confidence and ability to do things. And we don't really have those anymore. You know, I was thinking uh, as I was writing this book, I was like, what was my rite of passage as a young person? And I couldn't really think of anything that legitimately difficult. You know, it's like we get our driver's license. That's like, okay, half an hour test and make sure you use your blinker, you know? And, and um, we are seeing in the data, especially for kids who were born after 1990. This is when helicopter parenting started. Those kids have by far the highest uh, levels of mental health problems like depression and anxiety. And they think this is largely because they've never really been tested. So then when you get out into the world and your boss says, hey, this this work that you put in is, is shitty. Like that is a massive, massive challenge for you and, and you have no armor to protect yourself against that. So this is a this is a concept uh, called toughening, and it's been uh, you know they've proven it in the lab, they've proven it in among lots of populations, and um, I think we need to insert some more uh, real challenges in our lives. And this is also something that uh, adults can do. So in the book, I talk about there's a guy whose name is Marcus Elliot, and he's sort of the foremost sports scientist in the world. He works with a lot of NBA players, NFL players, and he does this concept that he calls Masogi, where once a year they choose one challenging, truly epic task. And the only rules are that it has to be really hard, meaning that you have a 50% chance of finishing it. And number two, you can't die. And so 
they've done different sort of kooky things that they just make up. Like one year they walked an 80 pound boulder underwater under the Santa Barbara uh, channel, I believe it was for, I think it was five miles. Another year they had never really done much uh, stand up paddleboarding, but they decide they're going to stand up paddleboard 30 miles uh, across uh, another channel outside. And these are things that are truly, you know, out of their comfort zones and so challenging for them, but they learn something about themselves by getting put in a position where, damn, I really want to quit. And this is awful. And I can't believe this. What are we doing? But by persisting, they get on the other side and they're like, oh man, I've got, like, I learned something about myself in there, you know? And then they can, when he does this with athletes, those athletes can carry that mindset into the games they play. And you see a lot of the people that have done it with him tend to be really clutch performers, especially in, you know, high tension situations. And I love how part one of your book starts off with rule number one, make it really hard. Rule number two, don't die. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I mean, you, just, you just throw us off the high dive right at the start of the book. And there is something extraordinary about putting yourself in a physical position on a somewhat regular basis that's confronting, that's challenging. And, you know, it might be how many burpees can you do without puking? Uh, or it might be some radical backcountry skiing trip or hiking or, you know, some extreme sport that you want to participate in. But there's this, there's this thing that happens in life when we challenge ourselves physically and we achieve something that heretofore we didn't think we could achieve. And it changes us psychologically. And so one of the questions I have for you, Michael, is, and maybe this is why the depression, and you'll explain it to me, is when we're not in a situation where we're physically challenged on a regular basis, and therefore we don't overcome that, and we don't have the physical rewards, the endorphins, the intrinsic aha, the sort of, well, wait a minute, if I'm capable of that, what else might I be capable of that I thought was impossible? We can't, my, I guess my question is, we can't really get that any other way without doing some of it physically. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I mean, there might be a variety of reasons for that. I know when you look at a lot of the, the toughening concept research I was telling you about, when you look at people who have the most uh, mental health problems, they tend to have either had way too many trying uh, tragic events in their life or they've had none. So there is a sweet spot for sure. And I think the physical element comes in is because, you know, back to those rites of passage I talked about, it's like for nearly all of time, we were very physical creatures, right? We had to, we evolved. The, the reason our body is built the way it is, for example, is because we would run down prey in the heat for, you know, miles and miles, 10 miles, 20 miles until the animal toppled over from exhaustion. And then we'd have to spirit. So that's a pretty epic, uh, mental and physical and emotional task. And so you could see a scenario where maybe that's woven into us and we have this sort of meaning we've, we've put on that. And it's just inherent to, uh, our species. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and that's been my experience. And my experience is, you know, I'm somebody who, uh, there've been times in my life where I'm going through a tough time and sort of my physicality falls off a cliff. I gain some weight uh, and I'm not my, my normal sort of weekend warrior athletic self. And there's no question that you feel physically different and therefore you feel mentally different. 
And, you know, interestingly, we just had uh, Scott O'Neill on the podcast, and he's the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. And he said something, you know, very simple, but very profound. He's been an athletic guy his whole life. And he coaches his his teams that you have to do something uh, physical to get your heart rate up. You have to do something intellectual to stimulate your mind. And you have to do something spiritual to stimulate your soul every day. And if you don't, you know, your life's not going to work the same way. And, and, you know, I know it sounds simple and maybe problematic to some, but I really think he's right. And yet we live in a world, you know, when I got your book, well, how, was, tell me again, uh, Michael, what percentage of time most people are inside in, in America? About 95%. So what happens to a person when you're not even outside? Yeah, we, I mean, we know going back, uh, well, I mean, if you think back in time, there's a reason that when we first started making cities, this was, you know, thousands of years ago, we would put gardens in them. We seem to be drawn to nature for some reason. And basically through, through all of time though, in terms of, uh, when we started researching this, a lot of the ideas were like, well, nature isn't inherently good for us. It must just be that we're out hiking in nature or we're out doing something in nature that's more, you know, good for us physically. Uh, then Japan in the 1980s, they started uh, doing this program called Shinrin-yoku, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it uh, translates to forest, forest bathing. So the government created all these parks across the country, and they told their citizens, hey, go spend time in parks. It's good for you to be out in nature. Now, researchers in Japan, they followed this up with research, and they started looking at, okay, is there anything inherently good for us about time in nature? And they've repeatedly found since that there is. And as part of this book, so being up in the Arctic for a month, I mean, I wasn't indoors ever, right? And what I found fascinating is that- And man, I bet that, you wanted to be a couple times. <laughs> or, yeah, there were a few times I wanted to be. Would have been nice to check into a Marriott every night. But essentially, we faced all these discomforts, right? Like being hungry, we had uh, we encountered grizzlies, all these different wild animals. We had uh, trying times with the weather. And you would think that I would be the most on edge I would ever be in my life up there because it's dangerous. But the opposite was true. Yes, when we had those times when we saw a grizzly, it's like my heart rate would be like boom, 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 boom. But all the other time, I was very sort of zen-like. It was almost like you know a monk after a month at a meditation retreat. And so I followed that up wondering, okay, well, what the hell is going on up there? Because that, that was pretty far out. And um, I followed it up. I met with this researcher in Boston who studies this idea that's called the nature pyramid. And it's, you can think of it like the food pyramid, but it's essentially telling us uh, how long we should spend in what type of nature and how often. So at the bottom of this pyramid, uh, this researcher has found that something as simple as 20 minutes a day, three times a week can really help with our decreasing our stress levels, making us feel calmer and also helping with uh, our brain power, our executive functioning more or less. At the second level is about five hours a month in nature that is more, a little more wild. So stuff that might be at like a state park that you could pretty easily drive to. And that research has shown that that five hours a month in the wilder stuff, it really helps with uh, depression and anxiety, really cuts those numbers down and helps makes people just feel uh, better about themselves. 
improves mental health. The very top level of the pyramid is uh, three days a year in really remote backcountry sort of wild nature. And this is an idea called the three-day effect. And they've taken people out and tested their creativity and also their, their brain patterns. And they find that creativity skyrockets after the third day. But even more interesting is that when people arrive in nature, they have these brain waves that are called beta waves. So these beta waves are associated with like really, you know, on edge, frenetic, anxious. After day three, people's brains shift to what are called alpha waves. These are like slow, more contemplative. They're, uh, they're also the waves that you find in experienced meditators. So they're finding that, you know, just spending three days a year or yeah, three days a year out in this backcountry stuff, it's almost like going on a extended meditation retreat that really just calms us down and leaves these lasting effects. Now it's, thank you for that. And I think that's very instructive. It's interesting listening to you break that down because I'm sort of having dual parallel thoughts in my head as you're talking. One is I remember at one point in my life years ago, Michael, uh, listening to some Deepak Chopra tapes and um, in the car. And I remember him saying, you should spend 30 minutes a day in nature. And at the time I had, I think, a typical sort of business person type life. And I heard that and it was fucking laughable. Like, <laughs> what planet are you on, Mr. Chopra? I mean, I get up in the morning, I have to haul my ass out of bed. Maybe I make it to the gym if I'm lucky, get in my car, commute an hour, go to the office, go to this meeting, go to that meeting, blah, blah, blah. Come home exhausted, have a beer and a little bit to eat, pass out and re repeat. And I'm like, 30 minutes a day in nature. That sounds like a, it sounded so inconceivable to me. Well, fast forward a couple decades later and um, I made a radical change in my life. And now I look at that or more importantly, I look at your comments right now and I go three days a year in the backcountry. That, that's nowhere near enough. 20 minutes a week outside. What, what are you nuts? Like I've completely altered my life and I've spent a big part of the last decade in Tahoe and I live in Santa Cruz and we're outside all the time. We're in nature all the time. It's been a radical transformation in my life. And so having lived sort of both ends of it, um, it's very clear to me what works. I mean, it's very, very clear, but it also seems like, you know, it reminds me of an old Lily Tomlin quote where she said, the trouble with the rat race is even if you win, you're still a rat. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's interesting and this the researcher that I met in Boston she sees it as it's she'll give presentations on this idea, right? And people like you were saying will come up to her and be like this is just another this is the 50th thing on this list of all this shit that scientists tell me I need to do for my health, my productivity, blah 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 blah, you know. And when people come at her with that, she usually frames it as these are people who are you know, sort of type A, got to work, got to grind, got to do A, B, C, D. She frames it as uh, the productivity benefits. So she says that, you know, you look at the, the research and people who spend these little stints in nature, even something as long as, you know, walking a really tree-lined street or walking down uh, through a park on your way to get your coffee, will come back to the office and to their grind with more creativity and oftentimes more productivity. 
So it's like, if you were to sit and try and grind through in burnout mode, you might come up with say 18 ideas and they're decent ideas. If you would have taken that 10, 20 minutes, whatever it is, give your brain some time to rest and reset in nature, you might have 20 ideas and they might be better ideas. You know, so it's like, we try so often today to always be swimming upstream and we think that, oh, if I just freaking swim harder, I'll get to that point I'm trying to get to. It's like, no, man, you got to pull to the side and rest a little bit. And why don't you try and figure out where the current isn't as swift? Like, let's think about this and reset, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I learned to love to do when I was uh, an operating executive was to have a walking meetings. You know, we mm. live in Northern California. The weather here is beautiful most of the time. You got a 45-minute one-on-one with one of your direct reports. Just say, let's walk around the block a couple times and talk. And you have a very different uh, conversation. It can be as simple as that. And the other part I love about your work in this regard, Michael, it is, to me, it is anti-hustle porn. You know, over the last decade or so, all these hustle porn stars have emerged and they scream absolute stupidities about this. And the obvious stupidity is, hey, listen, uh, yeah, it takes hard work, duh. But you can't be at 110% all the time unless you recharge the batteries, period, full end of discussion. Um, and, and there is something about being outside that changes everything. And so if I'm a business leader, if I'm an entrepreneur, if I run marketing or I'm a CFO, or how do I create an environment for myself and my people that sort of harnesses um, some of your great learnings? Yeah, well, I say you're right that, I mean, the book is definitely anti-hustle porn in a lot of ways, because unfortunately, you look at the science, it just doesn't bear out that this whole always grind mentality is good for us or even getting us to where we want to be. And, um, you know, if I, to your, to your question, I think giving employees opportunities to get out and find what they're passionate about and giving them time to rejuvenate, um, allowing them to put themselves in positions where they can be more creative. And we know that nature is one way. So whether that's, you know, make sure people have enough time that they can do with three, four or five days in the back country putting themselves in these positions that we know because of how the environments we evolved in are going to be good for us and increase our creativity, I think would be a huge plus. And I love your idea of walking meetings, especially if they're outside, if you're doing uh, retreats, like go somewhere cool, somewhere outside, do something hard together. You know, it's like you could all, you know, sit and watch a speaker and have a bunch of drinks or it's like, you know what, today we're hiking up to the top of that fucking mountain. And then we're going to learn something about all of us together, you know, and we're going to have to put ourselves in position and together work as a team to do something cool that we didn't think maybe we were capable of. And that's going to bring the team together way more than, you know, another, uh, beer social hour. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but like, let's intersperse those with something else as well. You know? Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, I, there are things that I try to do to encourage people to do this kind of stuff with me, both work folks and, and people in my personal life, in my family and my friends. Uh, and what I find is there's an increasing number of people who are hesitant to want to do stuff. And so, you know, for example, I'm meeting an entrepreneur next weekend and she's coming in from out of town 
and she's going to come visit me at my place. Well, great. I suggest, and she wants to go have brunch and, you know, we're talking about maybe me helping her with her business and this and that and the other. And I said, great. When you come, we have a bunch of beach cruisers around here. Let's go for a bike ride. And we'll chat on the bike ride. We can stop and walk on the beach if you like, uh, or bike along the beach. And then we'll find one of the local sort of brunchy type places and we'll have brunch. And so that's sort of an example of my attempt of including Mother Nature. There'll be some a little bit of exercise. There'll be the ocean. Maybe they'll be walking on the beach, but you'll certainly see the ocean. We'll do a little bit of exercise. We'll spend some time firing up a few endorphins maybe getting to know each other in a much less formal way. And then we'll sit down and have a business conversation over brunch on the personal side. You know, so for example, with some of the younger people in my life who uh, would much more be uh, rather be tethered to their technology than do anything else. You know, I, I push them to go on walks. And uh, for example, I'm scheduling some glamping this summer where it's, you know, it's sort of the high end version of roughing it. We're still outside, but there's, you know, a lot of comforts, but at least we're outside and it's a stepping stone to getting to where I want them to, which is to your point, take them in the backcountry and, 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 and teach them how to do this for real. But with all that said, Michael, what are th- advice that you'd have for me and others around? How do you get people professionally and personally to be willing to try this when they roll their eyes at you and say, ah, let's just get the meeting over with or fuck it. I want to be on my technology. I don't want to go camping with my uncle Christopher. <laughs> Well, I think you're smart that it sounds, I mean, when you mentioned glamping, it's like you're leading people into this. So the idea in the book that I talk about, about doing something hard once a year and the benefits that stem from that, it just has to be hard for you, whoever the individual is. So, you know, for me, very hard was 33 days in the Arctic backcountry. Now, one of the guys I went with, you could send him out for 12 months with a pocket knife and he would probably okay, that might be hard for him, right? I mean, he's at the extreme end. But then you have people where could be just like a hike up to, you know, just a general nature hike might be pretty challenging for them. Doesn't matter what it is. It matters that you're getting out and challenging yourself. So I think for, um, you know, someone in, in your position, it's figuring out, meeting your employees sort of where they're at and trying to figure out how you can, uh, figure out some sort of group thing that isn't going to make some person so uncomfortable that they're going to freak out and really hate it. It's more like leading them in a little bit, you know, wading them in. And then they realize the water's not so bad. And once they can do that, it's like, okay, maybe we can go into some deeper water next time. But I, I do love this idea of having, you know, these business discussions out doing things because the office can be so sterile and boring. You get right into it you know, whatever the topic is, you don't really get to learn anything about this person. And part of it, I mean, especially if you're thinking about, you know, interviewing someone for a position, you probably want to learn things about them, like how they interact in everyday life with other people, you know? So if you're out doing something outside and and biking and there's someone in front of them and they're all pissed off that this person's in front of them, it's like, well, that's probably a bad sign, right? It's like, how do they carry themselves in daily life? And can we can we see that through these processes of getting outside and and doing something that's a little more creative and fun? Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, when I got to part two of your, your book, Michael, you, you, again, one of the expressions that runs through my head sometimes is, is it wrong for one man to love another man? (laughs) (laughs) Because this whole notion of rediscover boredom and there's this aha, of course, that, primarily because of the smartphone, but but other technology things as well, 
We literally are never fucking bored. If we're in line at Starbucks and we're bored for a nanosecond, we pull open our phone and we start, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, if you're me, you start going through Instagram looking at, you know, guitars and muscle cars, right? Yeah. And so we're never bored for a second. And what I've noticed about that is we don't, our mind doesn't wander. We don't end up anywhere serendipitously. And so I'd love it if, you know, you say rediscover boredom, ideally outside. So tell me about why you think it's legendary to be bored outside. You're right. We're never bored anymore. So I mentioned this a little bit ago, but the average person now engages with digital media 11 hours a day. So in just 100 years, we went from zero digital media in our lives to 11, more than 11 hours of it. Now, Cell phones obviously stand out because we can, they actively notify us when we're in that line at Starbucks, we can pull them out and look at guitars and muscle cars. It's just the reflexive thing to do. But we also still spend more than four hours on TV, all these other forms. So it's really just invaded our lives. But the problem is, is that these are very easy escapes for boredom. And what we find in these escapes is the same shit that everyone else is seeing. So boredom is actually a was a benefit as we evolved. It's this evolutionary discomfort that basically tells us whatever we're doing, our return on investment of our time is low and we're not getting a benefit anymore. So you could see that as we were evolving in these environments where we always had to be working and hustling to survive, if you have boredom kick in, it's like, hey, you know, this tree is running out of berries. There's not enough on it. Let's go, let's go kill a elephant or whatever it is. Like we're do we're constantly doing things that help us survive. Well, nowadays, you know, we don't do these things that are as productive for us. So boredom kicks in and it's automatically into the pocket. So by putting yourself in a position, especially outside where you can get bored, it's like your brain is forced to wander. It goes into a mode called the default mode network. And that's essentially a restorative state that uh, has been shown to improve our creativity. It helps tame burnout. It reduces uh, anxiety, these moments where we can just let our brain rest and not just automatically default to the same stuff on our cell phone allows us to sort of ride a different wavelength of creativity. And if we're outside, we're also getting those other benefits that I also talked about. Whereas the research shows if you go outside and you're on your cell phone the whole time, you're not seeing any of these benefits because your brain is still actively working. It's not getting these moments of rest it needs by mind wandering. The other thing it, it strikes for me is we've become consumers of information and consumers of thinking. And what we're less now is we do less of our own thinking. And so the thoughts that we think are actually replays of the content we consume. And a lot of people don't think about thinking anymore. You know, they'll take a a statement. I'll just pull one out of my ass. America is the greatest country in the world. Uh, Okay. And it gets repeated over and over and over again. Okay. How often do we say, is America the greatest country in the world? By what criteria do Americans say it's? So we we just stop there, right? And so my point is, in a world of tweets and Kardashian ass selfies and all of these stupidities and, and, you know, technology enabled mass distraction, we just 
curate and, and pick things. So we consume things, but we don't contemplate what we're consuming. And then we end up parroting a lot of the shit. And, and yet we never, one of my favorite expressions, Michael, is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. And yet if we're never bored, we're always consuming essentially somebody else's thinking. And we haven't given ourselves the time to go, well, what do I think about whatever the thing is? Is Well, is America the greatest country in the world or not? Let me think about that. We, we very rarely ask ourselves, let me think about that. I agree with you 100%. You're right. It's, it's so easy to just fall into other ideas right now. And so I think by getting outside, I had this moment when um, we got, I got dropped off on the, in the middle of the tundra. The, I was totally alone. So the pickup plane was, was too big, basically. And we had to ferry each other one at a time to our final destination. So I get left middle of the tundra, completely alone. I mean, it, miles and miles and miles from anyone. And this is by far the most alone I'd ever been in my life, right? Even today, when we think we're alone, what are we doing? To your point, we are reading someone's hot take on, you know, the, the New York Times or whatever it is. We're on Twitter. We're, we are with people through our texts, through cell phones, through media. We don't just be with ourselves anymore. So I'm out there. My cell phone, I mean, it's essentially a camera. It doesn't, it doesn't work at all. There's no service for 100 miles. And it was super interesting to just sit there and think, oh, man, like I'm completely removed from society. And a lot of us live our entire lives basically just doing the narrative of society, right? It's like, no, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, then I'm going to do this, because that's what society tells me I should do. Whether it's go to college, get this degree because of X, oh, I have to get a house at this age, I have to do this. And those are like big scale things, but these things play out every day in our thoughts and actions. And we never sort of remove ourselves from those. And to your point, think about, well, why the hell am I doing this? There's this famous Zen koan where um, this Zen guy is going from um, meditation hut to meditation hut, right? And he's like going to all these different places. He's going on a pilgrimage and he gets to one and he spends some time there and he's decided he's gone on you know, this pilgrimage because that's what you do. And he's leaving and the meditation master goes, you know, what is pilgrimage? And the guy, for whatever reason, has one of these moments in Zen where he goes, I, I, I don't know. You know, it hits him. He's like, why the hell am I doing this? And so then the Zen uh, meditation master responds, not knowing is most intimate. And so it's like these moments where we have not knowing. We don't really know why the hell we're doing things. And we have to question ourselves and our intentions and our thoughts. That's, I mean, that's key. There's an old, uh, an old philosophy that says you should ask why at least seven times mm. before you can sort of get to the root of something, right? And most people give up after two whys. They're like, why do you have a podcast? Oh, I like talking to people. Okay, end of discussion. Well, okay, <laughs> why do you like talking to people? Well, because you learn things. Okay, well, why do you like, you know, and then it starts to get around five whys. It starts to get to, you know, be something interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, um, you know, you did a journey that most people won't do for a length of time that most people wouldn't consider doing it. And what were your most unexpected learnings, Michael, about yourself? I think part of it was, I think, realizing that not just me, but everyone is a lot more capable of pretty much anything they decide they're going to try and chew off. 
than they think they are. It's like we have a lot of, you know, a lot of our fears are are anticipatory. When we put ourselves in these positions of challenge, things really start moving. I mean, you could see how as we evolved that it would make sense to make people much more overcompetent than they believe they are. Because you don't want someone being like, oh yeah, hold my beer. I can do the hell yeah, I can do that. And then failing. If people failed every time, like we wouldn't be around anymore. It makes a lot more sense to have people go, no, I'm not doing that. I could never do that. But then if they get forced into that position, having them be able to do that. So we can find these things uh, in nature with these challenges. And I think we can then take them into our more mundane, maybe everyday lives and realize that, man, we sell ourselves short a lot. Like if you just try stuff and just stay present and with it as you're doing it, you can, you can accomplish a lot more than I think that, that we believe we can. It's interesting that there's a, a word that we hear a little bit today, but mostly in a bullshit context. Um, and that word is humble. And what I love about what you're saying, and it's a martial arts expression, you will either be humble in your martial art or humbled by it. Mm. And I remember at one point in my life, uh, about a little over a decade ago, Michael, I was deep into training martial arts. I was deep into yoga and I was learning how to surf. And I remember coming out of a yoga session, feeling like a complete donkey. And, um, and I was on my way home and I thought to myself, Hey, Lockhead, you, you spend an extraordinary amount of time right now doing things you are completely incompetent at and like embarrassed at, afraid of, you know, when you're training martial arts and you start sparring, like it's very focusing and surfing as well. I mean, holy shit. Right. And so I remember this, this, this sort of feeling I had, like my entire life right now, <laughs> I feel incompetent most of my waking hours. And as crazy as that sounds, there's something awesome about that. Yes, there absolutely is. Uh, as I was getting, I mean, I experienced a little bit of that as I'm getting ready for this 33 days in the Arctic, right? Like I'm having to learn like all this stuff. So we were, we were hunting while we were up there. So I have to learn all these different things about hunting. I have to learn about how do you survive in these challenging environments? I even have to think about, okay, how are we going to, what are we doing for food? And like, how much should I pack in? And what, you know, what sort of gear do I need to take? And it was totally humbling and bumbling. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing most of the time. But when we put ourselves in new situations, all of a sudden our brain, it doesn't know what to expect. So we're forced into presence. So you think about the average American life right now, and I definitely fall into this often. It's we do the same shit every day. I mean, you wake up, you have kind of the same breakfast, do the same route to work. It's the brain is programmed to default to that which it can predict and control. So this is why we live in these sort of safety nets of doing the same thing. But when that, when we get into those safety nets, our brain can just zone out because it knows what to predict. This is why we're oftentimes sort of just, you know, we don't even know what the hell we're paying attention to. We can't tell you what the hell we did the last couple hours. When you do something new and take on a challenge, like you know, for you, martial arts, surfing, yoga, all of a sudden your brain doesn't know what to expect. So it has to be aware and focused. And this has a lot of benefits. I mean, just for being present in your everyday life, but it also, uh, researchers have found it shows it slows down your sense of time. So this is why time seems slower when you were a kid 
because everything was new then and you were constantly being forced to learn. So when you think about looking back on your life at the end of it, do you want to, I mean, you're not going to remember like, yeah, I made the same dinner I ate uh, every night and I watched Netflix and blah, blah. Like, you're just not going to remember that. Nothing wrong with that, but we need to intersperse our lives with, with newness and these new experiences. So then when we look back, we have, it's almost like we have a scrapbook say, so, yeah, like I, I did this thing and this thing and it was amazing, you know? Yeah. Now, as I'm going through your book, I'm, I'm also thinking, okay, this is clearly gospel to the converted for me. And so I'm soaking it all up. I, I have a highly agreeing experience with, you know, virtually everywhere on the page. Like, ah, tell him, Michael, that's great. Or, you know, so it's affirming for, for a position that I clearly had and feel, dare I say, even righteous about coming into reading your book. But I always try to think about things in, in a broad sense. And if I were to try to take the counter to this, I might say, hey, well, Michael, look, the reality is we're moving to a digital world. And people who are analog digital, that is to say, born before, you know, the turn of the century, you know, they, they are increasingly becoming more digital in their lives. And if you're born since the turn of the century, or really probably if you're 30 or younger, you're probably consider yourself a native digital. And the aha for me about a native digital versus a native analog is if you're a native digital, your digital experience is your primary life experience and your analog experience is an adjunct to that. And of course, for those of us who are native, analog like myself, it's the opposite. Although my digital life is becoming more important. So if you accept that premise and you say, okay, well, native analogs are becoming more digital and native digitals are digital and they care a lot less about their physical life. Well, if you play all that out and you think about AI and you think about the future and you think about the cloud and you think about robots and you think about all that and you go, we're not going to need much of a physical body, Michael. I mean, we can get anywhere we want instantaneously with technology transporting us. We can talk to each other over the internet. Uh, Esports is projected to become bigger than what I would call real sports, right? There are there are esports athletes now that are making zillions of bucks a year, and uh, they don't look like any kind of athlete that you and I might recognize as an athlete. And so, I guess my point is, I think there are some people who might say, "Listen." As the digital experience of life becomes the experience of life, who gives a shit if I get exercise? Who gives a shit if I'm chow? Why the fuck would I ever go out into the middle of the fucking snow and, and put myself through that crap hole? It's ridiculous. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, um, you know, this technology is great. I use it all the time. I love it. But I think the argument for these moments where we do what we as a species evolve doing I would compare it to a pill. So if you look at research on, uh, say, studies where they look at the benefits of exercise versus those of a pill, exercise wins a lot of the time. So for uh, conditions like artery claudication. And the other thing that these studies don't look at is, okay, the pill might have helped this one thing, right? But exercise has this myriad of benefits. 
And so I think, I know, I mean, I'm pretty confident that in my lifetime, we're not going to find this one thing that can provide all these systemic myriad benefits from the bottom up that in tech that we can with things like exercise and things like putting ourselves in challenging moments. You know, right now, I think that um, back to that idea of being humble, I think we know a lot less than we think we do. We have the sense that like we're making these big advances all the time and it's amazing. But if you look at why humans live, like what's improved human lifespan the most, it's because we started fucking washing our hands and like not drinking shitty water and, and treating sewage. And we stopped, you know, we started putting in some basic food safety measure. So like, yes, we have a lot of great medicine and stuff like that, but it has it really moved the dial as much as we think it does. Like it goes back to this very basic stuff that humans really thrive on. Exercise, connection with others. Like I said, good nutrition, food, putting ourselves in challenges and overcoming those challenges, getting enough sleep, drink some damn water. Like this is the stuff that makes humans work. And I don't think there's ever going to be some very specific app that can just beam that into us. Like hopefully one day, I don't know, maybe that would be better for us. But in the meantime, I mean, shit, don't count on an app helping your mental and physical health anytime in the, ne in the next five years radically. Like you're still going to have to sweat. You're still going to not have to eat like an asshole. You're going to have to make some friends in the real world. I mean, take that way if you want to we'll see who's living in 50 years you know well see this is the fascinating uh thing so not long ago we had um uh april lampert and amy baldwin from the shameless sex podcast on mm -hmm. um and they're incredible and uh one of the things that we talked about is how the category of sex itself is changing mm. and so when you look at the data you know, the Atlantic came out a while ago and said, we're living in a quote unquote sexual recession. And you dig into the data and all the data says the same thing. Young people are having way less sex. They're losing their virginity way later. Um, uh, older people are having way less sex. There is a takedown in sex across pretty much every demographic. And there is a there since the pandemic hit, there's been a 400 percent increase in tech uh, sex toy sales. Mm. And you can now apparently get, quote unquote, everything you need, whatever that is, to have a virtual or augmented reality sex for about 200 bucks. I just read an article of a, of a guy who just married his sex doll legally. Anyway, my, my point is what I found interesting when I dug into the sex thing with Amy and April is just like everywhere else in our world, Michael, it's becoming digitized. And the digital experience is, is chasing the analog experience down. And there are many people today who say, fuck analog sex. It's way easier to have sex with myself and technology. I can get this thing done. I can get myself cleaned up and on with my day. And they, they are not having human to human a physical sex. And it appears this is an increasing trend. And so, what that has to do with you is I, I, I wonder about that. You know, I love to ski. I took my nephew skiing last weekend and we had, had an absolute blast. Beautiful spring day in Tahoe. It was absolutely perfect. Four, uh, six inches of freshies. Nobody there. It was incredible, right? And I thought afterwards, and I was thinking of you in your book, 
you know, we're at pretty much at a place today where he and I could put on some VR glasses and think we did what we did. Mm-hmm. And so are we, if people, if you think, think about the role of sex in people's lives, and if the digital sex has gotten to a point where there's some percentage of the population that seems to be increasing that says, you know what, I'm going to do this and fuck do, doing the quote real thing. And that's becoming the real thing. Does that happen with skiing or camping or backcountry or, or, you know, pick all the things that I think you and I love to do? Yeah, I don't know. I hope not. I mean, I guess it depends on how real the technology is. I've used a little bit of VR myself and it doesn't, uh, makes me want to vomit. And the times that I've used it, there's something about it that just, it can't get it right for me. I also wonder what those people with the sex toys, it's like, okay, if you put a, let's say you have some random dude who's like, yeah, love my, my sex robot, which is great. You know, if you like strutted a, a woman who was interested his way and was like, pick one, what do you think he's going to pick? Like, does he going to go for the sex doll? I don't know. I kind of find I that. I think a lot of them are starting to go for the sex doll. That's what really? I think I'm wow. learning. Interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens with tech. Um, like I said, in the meantime, we know what works, you know, get out, get outside. Well, and here's the counter argument. And of course, I'm pretty sure you and I land in the same place, which is mm-hmm. at 11 hours a day in front of a screen of some kind. Mother nature is more required now than ever before. And we mm-hmm. call her Mother Nature for a reason. She's the source of all life. And it's no, it's no surprise that this nature, the source of all life, makes us feel rejuvenated when we go for a nice walk. And so, to me, the counter argument is the more, the more we slide into digital, the more important it becomes. And I'll share with you a couple of things I've done in my life, but I really want to hear your advice so a couple of things I did in my life, because I didn't want to slide too deep digitally. I took all the social apps off my phone with the exception of Instagram, because of course it's a, it's a photo app that lives on your phone, but all the other ones are off my phone. Mm-hmm. So if I want to update Twitter or do anything else, LinkedIn, whatever, I got to be at a computer. And then uh, my wife, Carrie and I realized, you know, we're, we're on our computers all the time. And even though we're outside a lot and we do a lot of outdoor activities, it was feeling like too much to us. So we made a commitment to each other. All technology is off at 4 p.m., period. Nice. Laptops, smartphones, gone. So those are a few simple things that we've tried to do, but I'm curious, what advice would you have if I say, you know what, Michael's absolutely right. I don't want to live in comfort all the time. I want to be out there and I want to force myself to get off this digital drug. I love your idea of all technology off because one way that I try and explain it to people is that Everyone wants to think less phone, less phone, less phone now. But you find a lot of these people will go, okay, I'm going to use my phone less. And then they go, well, what do I do with my time? And then they watch Netflix. Like this is like, you know, quitting cigarettes and picking up chewing tobacco. It's the same damn thing. Your brain doesn't know the difference. So I think trying to find places to just be completely off of technology a little bit each day is the right way. So for me, I usually will go for a walk every single day outside and I just don't take my phone because I don't need it. That way it's not, the pull isn't there. Yeah, but right? Michael, what if something happens and you have to update TikTok? Well, there you go. It's, I mean, what, people have actually brought that up to me seriously. And it's like, 
you didn't even have a cell phone 15 years ago and you made it this far. Like, what do you think is going to happen? You know, and I'll even leave home with it uh, when I'm going and doing errands. I'll just leave it at home because I'm like, okay, I can drive in silence and I can think and then I can go to the store and even being forced to wait in a line is great because you just sit and think and you notice and you notice things about people. I mean, it's one of the best ways that I found to come up with ideas and people go, well, what happens if you, if you, uh, get lost? I'm like, I'll, I'll find my way home. I can stop and ask for directions. Like I would have had to 20 years ago. You know, it's, it's, uh, people are so, and there's a reason for this. There's this concept in the book that I talk about called prevalence induced concept change. It essentially means that as a new technology or comfort gets introduced, we immediately adapt to it. And then we don't look back and think, oh, yeah, we've made so much progress from where we were 20, 50, 100, 1,000 years ago. We think the last thing that we gave up is like unacceptable and completely like, oh, you could never do that. So we keep pushing this bar of comfort farther every day. Like the, the goalpost just keeps continuously moving. And we can't really, it blinds us to the fact of how far we've come and how comfortable and safe our lives are now. It means when we look back and go, well, what if it makes us go, well, what if you were to get lost? What would you do? It's like, you're going to be okay. You know, (laughs) it's funny. Sometimes you catch yourself being an asshole in this regard with the pandemic, you know, like many, we've gotten very used to home delivery of cooked meals, right? Mm -hmm. Wonderful restaurants and stuff. And we've tried to support our local restaurants that we, that we love and so forth, so forth and so on. Well, as things have started to improve in the economy, uh, some of our favorite local restaurants have stopped doing DoorDash, a.k.a. home delivery stuff on the weekend because there's enough people back in Santa Cruz and there's outdoor seating and some indoor seating and this and that and the other. They're like, hey, we, we need your business on the delivery side during the week, but we're kind of getting busy again on the weekend so we don't do delivery. And so my wife and I were having some friends over on Saturday and we wanted delivery food. And uh, two or three of the restaurants we were interested in, you know, she looked up on her phone and said, oh, you know, they're not doing weekend delivery. And I'm like, that's fucking bullshit. They're not doing weekend delivery anymore. And then I caught myself doing exactly what you just described. Yeah. Well, I think that, and so this is, this is why it's important to do, to put ourselves in these positions where stuff sucks sometimes, whether it's this big outdoor thing or spending more time outdoors or whatever, because you had that moment. You know, I think our natural reaction is always going to be like, I wanted that fucking pad thai. We got to get that pad thai. But then we go, oh, yeah, this isn't really a big deal. We'll call somewhere else, you know, and to be able to have that pause and then reset is great. Because if you didn't have it, then you're just going to be a pain in the ass and just have this like terrible night, you know, and we don't have that perspective. Yeah, I tend not to stay as a kid who grew up in a very, to put it in my mildly modest way, I tend not to stay in that stupid place very long. But yeah, but it is easy to go there in the moment. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> now, Michael, uh, I want to be super respectful of your time. Is there any uh, anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Oh, man, we covered a lot. Is there anything I didn't uh that we didn't talk about that you wanted to touch on or, you know, there's one other thing. Well, actually there's a lot of other things in the book, but, but one that jumps to me, and this is something that I discovered when I really embraced the backcountry life, you know, maybe about 15 or so years ago. And you talk about uh, feeling hunger and why that matters. 
And when you're in the backcountry, whether it's in my case, backcountry skiing or just going for a long hike, you know, here having the Sierra Nevadas, having the Santa Cruz Mountains. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful ways to get in the mountains. And if you do a multi-day hike or a multi-day backcountry trip, you know, you might get your mountain house shit right and you might get the right number of cliff bars. But the reality is you can't eat enough um, to replace the calories that you're burning on a backcountry trip. And you invariably end up hungry. And it's a mind blower to me to think, you know, we're burning maybe six or 800 or six, 6,800, 8,000 calories a day. And we're kind of having a hard time eating 2000. Yeah. And yet sometimes we're, somehow we're functioning. And even if we feel hungry and we might have a dream about a burger or, or uh, uh, you know, pizza, it is this weird thing that happens with our body. We adjust to an extraordinary amount of output with not very little input pretty quickly. And I found that shocking, but I'm curious to kind of touch on that with you. Yeah. So when we were in the Arctic, I mean, we packed in about 2000 calories a day in these mountain house meals and cliff bars and stuff like that. But yeah, we're burning at least 4,000, 6,000, sometimes some days, 8,000 calories a day. And you start to lose weight pretty quick and your mind starts to think, oh man, I could really go for a cheeseburger right now. But you survive, you know, and this is, we live in a world now where food is oftentimes a widget. You know, before I had been up in the Arctic, I would eat because it was, ah, it's breakfast, it's lunch, it's, it's dinner. Or like, yeah, I'm kind of bored. I guess I'll eat something or kind of stressed out. You know what would fix this is a handful of M&Ms. And that's how so many of us eat. It's when you look at the data, about 80% of eating nowadays is driven by reasons other than true physiological hunger. So when I, uh, when I was up in Alaska, I was like, I was rocketed back into this feeling of what does hunger actually feel like? And I think that is, would be useful for a lot of people today to sort of experiment with these times where, you know, they're moving often and, and not eating quite as much because we often have just lost, we don't really know what like real hunger feels like anymore. And we eat so much that, you know, 70% of the country is overweight or obese. And it's sort of the number one driver of a lot of our health problems. Now, after I got back from the Arctic, I wanted to explore this idea of hunger and, you know, weight loss. And well, why do people eat in the first place? And so I go and I meet this guy who I'd known for a long time, but we'd never spent time together in person. His name is Trevor Cashy. And he is a... Uh, <laughs> To say that Trevor is smart is like saying LeBron James is good at basketball. I mean, this, this kid is the next level. I think he's 28 years old. He graduated college when he was 18. He got his PhD in biochemistry when he was 23. Worked in a cancer research lab as like a 22-year-old. And then he sort of started getting popular among these athletes because he was helping them with their performance nutrition. And then he started helping people lose weight. And he's fascinating because he comes at from a totally different perspective than everything you see in nutrition and dieting today. It's like most diets today are basically telling, like pointing out one single food that's, you know, the evil food, whether it be carbs are evil um, on keto or, you know, a low fat diet basically, basically says fat is the reason you get fat. When you look at all the research, most nutrition minds agree it's, it's calories. We just eat too much calories, plain and simple, from a lot of different sources. 
And so Trevor is interesting because he goes, I'm not so much interested in what you're eating because chemically a calorie is a calorie. When you look at these things, they're not that much different. I'm interested in why you're eating. Most people, he says, who are you know, overweight or obese, they're often eating for reasons other than, than true hunger. So he works with them to help them reframe this idea of getting reintroduced to hunger and helping them realize when they're eating because they just want the reward of food and when they're eating because they actually need food as fuel. So he has people do things like um, learning how much they actually eat. And he has them go through a period where they weigh everything they eat. And now this seems finicky to me. And when I asked him why, he goes, look, I ran I've run experiments my whole life. This is what you do when you're trying to learn anything. You need to gather data. And when you look at research on how much food people think they eat, they're often off by like 50%. So, you, you know, people will come back to their nutritionist and be like, well, I ate the 2000 calories you told me. It's like, no, you didn't. You probably ate 2,500. You just don't realize it because as we evolved, having this impulse to eat more than we actually need, that was a survival mechanism because we'd put on fat. And then when we faced these lean times, we could draw on that fat, have energy, sort of like you were talking about skiing in the backcountry. That's why you could keep going. And it's like your body just goes, bam, flip. We're just going to start running off our fat. And so he's, his methods have really moved the dial for a lot of people, figuring out the, the why instead of the what. And then he often will have people eat foods that tend to be more filling than others to help people combat this sort of hunger that we face that's often sort of a coping mechanism for other things. Well, I love that. Thank you. And look, I'm not an expert in this regard at all, but what we learn when we push ourselves physically like this is you can absolutely eat half of what you eat, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there are many of us, to your point, that live on 3,000 calories a day, 4,000 calories a day. You can, cut your, you can cut your calories in half, most people in the Western world, and, and be totally fine. And you're going to be grumpy and a little hangry and all that. But, you know, I've done multi-day fasts, and I've done a lot of this backcountry stuff. And what we're capable of is, we, to your point, we just fucking eat too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's fascinating experiments around this too. There's one, a famous one called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. It was done around World War II, and they did it because they wanted to figure out how do we refeed the starving people uh, in post-war Europe? Because at the time, in World War II, uh, as many people died from starvation as they did in battle. So these scientists wanted to figure out what happens to a starving body how do we refeed re all these people safely? So they get these guys and for about, I think it was six months, they put them on a diet of around a thousand calories. And what they learned is that your body has all these amazing tricks and mechanisms to keep itself alive and keep going. These guys were, I mean, they're from the fifties. So they're built like these kind of skinny fifties guys initially. But yes, they lost a lot of weight. They drew on their fat reserves, but your body will also pull tricks like having your resting metabolism slow down. It'll dial down your internal temperature because, you know, burning hot burns more fuel. It does all these amazing things to keep us alive. And in doing so, it often pulls that uh, the stuff that it does burn as it goes are often cells that are damaged, that are not doing you a lot of good, that are associated with cancer and different diseases. So going through these fasts, your body is, you know, culling the weakest of the herd. And there seems to be some benefit from that. I've experienced it in my own life. And um, it's very powerful. And it's very, it's one thing to talk about. It's a whole other thing to have that experience 
you're consuming 1500 calories a day, you're burning four to six, and you're having one of the greatest times of your life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, totally. Amen. All right, Michael, anything else before we wrap? I don't think so. It was great talking to you, man. Thank you, brother. And I really, this book is fantastic. And I think the world needs a lot more of Michael right now. So thank you very much. And I have no doubt it's going to be a, a, a massive smash hit. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the kind words. That means a lot coming from you. And it was super fun to talk. I'm sure we'll, we'll be in touch. We'll keep rapping for sure. Please. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you, Michael. Well, there he is. Michael's new book is called The Comfort Crisis. Embrace discomfort to reclaim your wild, happy, healthy self. Check it out wherever you get legendary books. And make sure you're subscribed to this podcast because our next couple episodes are absolute barn burners. You're not going to want to miss them. Hit that subscribe button. Now, if you're a business owner, there's a chance you might be making running your business harder than it has to be. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. Stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. And ditch the spreadsheets and all that old, old-fashioned software that you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. You see, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need to build a legendary business all in one place instantaneously. So whether you're doing a million dollars a year or hundreds of millions in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Check out netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And as you know, legendary businesses are digital businesses. And if we've learned one thing of late, we have noted the accelerated need for digital transformation. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Splunk is the leader in data to everything. Splunk lets you build a more resilient organization and accelerate your cloud transformations. As a matter of fact, Domino's turned to Splunk to reposition itself as an e-commerce company that happens to sell pizza. The global pizza chain shifted its focus to digital channels and emerging technologies, all without surrendering the personal touch that goes into every Domino's pizza. So if you want to thrive in the digital age like Domino's, check out Splunk.com slash D2E. That's Splunk.com slash D2E. All right. We would like to thank one more time the legendary Michael Easter, his new book. Check it out, The Comfort Crisis. Also want to say thank you to Lindsay Kennedy for helping to make this episode happen. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, LifeFullyLive.org. And my friends at the TheDropInCoalition.org are helping underserved kids in the Santa Cruz area get stoked about surfing, science, technology, art, and more. Check out DropInCoalition.org and make a difference today. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant company. If you need a personal assistant who's dedicated to you and nowhere near you, check out Bottleneck.online today. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. And I would ask you to consider making a justice deposit. You see, when you move some of your money to a black-owned bank... 
not only do you get the same kind of service you do at a traditional bank, you empower that bank so that they have more money to lend. And with more money to lend, they can make more dreams happen. So move some of your assets today to a black-owned bank and a justice deposit. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Please check with your lawyer, doctor, spouse, shrink, and spiritual advisor before acting on anything you just heard. Uh, also, this uh, oddcast tends to go better with libations, and please do not forward this to anyone who doesn't appreciate real, different conversation. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Jamie J. and Sarah Knox do legendary technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. Don't forget to check out Category Pirates. If you like different thinking, you'll want to subscribe to Category Pirates. Show notes by GM Simon. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. And the left lane is the fast lane. Please get out of the left-hand lane. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Lyle Lovett was right. Thank you, Candy Danny. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. We deeply appreciate it. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>